Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's Middle East and Africa Forum for Sustainability Leaders podcast, where we take a deeper dive in this massive push towards sustainability that we're seeing across the region, trying to uncover intelligence and insights for our stakeholders to help them navigate the journey ahead. Today, we're lucky to be joined by our special guest speaker, Nick Green, Senior Manager of Policy at Abu Dhabi Global Market. Uh, thank you, Nick, for joining the show. Pleasure to be here. Nick, before we, we jump into things, we, I just want to get your overall perspective on the role that AGGM plays, uh, of course, in this massive sustainable finance place, uh, and then, of course, the role that you play in navigating the pathway forward in that segment. Sure, and maybe just to introduce uh, ADGM um, to those who don't uh, know it well enough already. Uh, so it's Abu Dhabi Global Market. We are a financial free zone within Abu Dhabi, of course, uh, the UAE. Uh, we were launched in uh, 2015 as a business and financial center um, within the UAE. So essentially what the, the center is, is a place to do business for uh, for investors and um, uh, those managing money uh, to meet. And uh, within ADGM, we have the Financial Services Regulatory Authority. So we are you know, a, a, seek out to be a world-class uh, financial services regulator. Uh, I am a policy operative within uh, the FSRA. And so what we're really seeking to do here, my role in particular, is to build a regulatory framework that will facilitate that doing that, that uh, doing the business. Uh, and where this really hits the kind of climate area is a couple of ways, but we're becoming a real fund manager, uh, a center of fund management. I mean, we brand ourselves as the capital of capital, some of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Uh, you have very large uh, global name setting up from the hedge fund and uh, traditional fund management world. And they are setting up investment vehicles which are investing in the transition to net zero. So one of the ways in which we are focusing our efforts is to facilitate that effort for uh, fund managers to direct uh, the capital they're raising into economic activities that will make net zero a reality. It's not the only way, and I can go through some of the other ways that we're seeking to do that, that too. But I think big picture, it's a, a financial and business center with a regulator here. We can help uh, ensure that capital uh, is directed towards uh, sustainable projects and activities. Uh, just a follow-up question on that, because um, sustainability is constantly evolving. Uh, of course, these standards and metrics are different from country to region to globally, et cetera. Where do you start when you, when you want to try to build and enhance that regulatory framework? What's the starting point, the thought process that goes through that, and then the pathway that you see forward in, in creating that environment that is, I would say, most enabling for sustainability to push forward? Yeah, sure. So there's so much to uh, regulation of sustainable finance you have to prioritize. Um, we published our first iteration of a framework for sustainable finance in July, early this year. And we prioritized, but we were also quite broad as well. So the way that regulators think about sustainable finance regulation is that you can um, regulate the greening 
of finance. So you can try and make the, the, the entities within your uh, jurisdiction more green themselves. So you can use the influence of the regulator you have to make banks and uh, other commercial entities just uh, more green or move them along their path to net zero. But you could also facilitate the financing of green activities. And uh, that's uh, something that we've also focused on. Um, so you could argue that we've prioritized but tried to do a lot of things at the same time. In terms of um, uh, greening finance, we uh, published our first requirements for ESG disclosures. We also created a regulatory framework uh, for environmental instruments, such as carbon offsets, carbon emissions, sort of bring that within the regulatory frame, uh, framework. That's seeking to either nudge uh, the entities within our jurisdiction to become more green or help them become more green by enabling them to um, offset emissions uh, using a sort of trusted regulated party. Uh, in our case, uh, it's um, the air carbon exchange. On the other side, uh, our sort of prioritization has, as I sort of think mentioned earlier, is focused on the fund management world. Um, so we identified that we needed more investor trust in um, funds which are seeking to invest in the transition. So we created a regulatory framework for what we call green funds, which invest in green assets, or climate transition funds, which invest in, in assets which are greening. They're not green yet, and the capital is is being made available in order to help them to become green. We also have uh, a framework for bonds and uh, green bonds and, and portfolios. But uh, I mean, uh, in order to kind of uh, uh, not ramble on too much, you kind of see that our, our focus has been really on, on, on those areas. How has the private sector reception been to uh, that next step in that regulator regulatory environment? Has it been receptive? Uh, being adopted, a part of that, that you know, I would say solution that's being created, or is it kind of, you know, also the chicken and egg where you're helping them, you know, move along as well? Is it a mix of both or what has the reception been? Um, so we went to consultation on the framework in this time last year, and the reception was actually excellent from stakeholders. Uh, our framework was much celebrated. And one could kind of might be surprised that a lot of stakeholders are actually asking for more steps, more regulation in certain areas. Uh, and, and we certainly responded um, by, uh, by, by making our framework sort of even more strict following that, that consultation uh, in terms of the finalization of it. And furthermore, um, they actually asked and they're asking for further iterations to the framework as, as we go forward. So it's, it's surprising in a good way that uh, the financial sector um, uh, and just beyond the, the commercial sector has actually been more than receptive, celebrated this. I think the other element to your question is to what extent, the extent uh, there already exists a sort of critical mass of, for example, uh, product providers, which are creating sort of green funds and climate transition funds. Um, we're already seeing that. So whether we're seeing fund managers establish an ADGM with a 
a, a strong strategy of investing and transition, or we have funds which are already established here, which are looking to be part of our framework. Um, we are seeing that. So I've been on numerous calls over the last uh, five months since we published our framework with a look to uh, sort of uh, uh, bring in uh, already established parties uh, into our framework. We're still early on. I mean, this between now and 2050, this is- It's a journey. Be, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey and it's going to be, it has to be the priority um, because there's an existential risk of, of not meeting that zero. So it, the, the ball has only started rolling, but it's the momentum has been, been great and um and and I, I expect uh, great great things to develop. Just on that private sector point, um we had a, a conversation with a, a big regional bank based in the UAE and, and of course horse speakers as well who are were in the financial sector last week. And the idea that a, a lot of the, the funding that goes into projects right now is coming from the public sector. Um, of course, you know, there's a difference between bankable projects and, you know, transparency and, and creating that environment. From your perspective, um, what needs to be done in order to drive, uh, I would say, larger private sector participation in the financing aspect uh, for sustainable finance and sustainable projects? Uh, what do you think are, are the next steps and, and where you see things going? Okay, so that's a huge question. So I'm going to try and give you a sort of somewhat succinct answer. If you have the, the answer, it's to... like winning the lottery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it's it's been estimated by McKinsey that the gap between the capital allocated to net zero and what's required at the moment is something like four trillion US dollars per year. So it's a dizzying figure, and the kind of source of the gap likely varies region by region um, but I will I will speak to I will give you the best answer that I can um, uh, within the context of, of the question um, so it's true that uh, a, a lot of um, money is required to come from the public sector likely often due to the nature of the assets required to make net zero reality insofar as energy structure what you tend to have is, um, in, in many cases, uh, a, a lot of energy to be initially funded by government. Now, that doesn't always, that's always not the case, obviously, and it doesn't always have to be the case. I'll give you a good example. Uh, in the UK, um, uh, the Green Investment Bank was set up uh, to use capital from the government uh, to invest in offshore wind it was then privatized. And that may well be a good model um, uh, for some other jurisdictions uh, in a way to sort of animate um, their, their investment in energy infrastructure. It doesn't have to be the model. And I think, for example, in the UAE, you have uh, two examples of great uh, renewable energy companies, Mazda and Taka, which are making great strides in, um, in building uh, the energy transition. That being said, there is likely in any sort of market failure, as we can call this, uh, this big, there's likely a failure, not just on the supply side, but also on the demand side. So there's likely a failure 
in uh, demand from either institutional investors or um, sort of sort of mass investors. And that is one of the reasons why we have addressed in our regulatory framework what we see as the need to enhance or engender investor trust. The logic is the more that you get uh, funds out there with sort of mass um, uh, investor products, um, which are trusted by uh, investors and which are seeking to invest in the transition, the more capital that's going to be allocated from the private sector. Um, the gap, this, this green financing gap is too big. It's just too big to be addressed by government alone. So we need to address every single point of the sort of market failure in this. And the private sector absolutely does have a role to play. What's the first step in establishing that trust? Um, you know, we we also in, in our conversation last week talked about you know transparency and and leveraging that as a unique. Steps to establish that trust uh, amongst all stakeholders. What we have done is to remove subjectivity and uh, to a degree of uh, discretion um, from the fund manager side or from the sort of, we could call it the financial intermediary because it doesn't just apply to fund managers, regarding what is a green asset and what is a climate transition asset. And it's not to be sort of overly critical of how things have developed up to now, but we wouldn't have developed this framework unless we identified that sort of in the way that financial intermediaries have presented their sort of green projects up to now, baked into that has been sort of a lack of transparency, potentially too much discretion and subjectivity on behalf of the financial intermediary about what constitutes green. So we've just removed that. Um, for example, in the case of a green fund, an ADGEN green fund, if it wants to obtain a designation as a green fund, it has to invest in a very uh, specific list of assets. So, for example, assets which are aligned um, with a green taxonomy. And then uh, where it's not a mass market or um, where, where it is a mass market or, or sort of a, a sort of mass product or retail product, you have to get a third party to look at the portfolio and uh, provide assurance that that's actually what you've done uh, with the money. Um, so th there's that element of just removing the discretion. Uh, with climate transition funds, it's effectively the same kind of a framework. It's specific kinds of assets which we have identified and um, enable companies to transition to net zero. I'll give you an example, a green bond, which is issued with a second party opinion and, and with ongoing assurance about what those proceeds are being used for. Um, so removing discretion and subjectivity about what we're talking about is kind of absolutely key in the first step to, to that. I think that a lot of this is about momentum. So at the moment, you probably hear the phrase greenwashing said a little bit too much. 
it's it's a the personal opinion and it's it's not scientific well it keeps it, the definition keeps changing all the time well, right yeah, exactly, depending on the situation exactly exactly so it's not a, it's a it's a bit, a bit of an unscientific statement it's a hypothesis and the the counter to that is the risk that people are not investing in the transition because they assume that all things are greenwashing because it's such an easy claim to make so what we're trying to do in our regulatory framework is um essentially uh, put the level of discussion at no okay a a product which is called calling itself green or climate transition its discretion is is removed uh in terms of what what is constituted as green constituted as green or climate transition and that should make a really important impact a big part of this too is is one talent ensuring the ecosystem has the right talent that filters into this and communication to ensure that ecosystem thrives essentially and many of the stakeholders you know it's kind of along a spectrum of the journey some are starting at a some are closer to z um where do you see that you know we're currently at in terms of having the right talent in the sustainable finance space that understands what we're discussing um and, and of course will take advantage of it and contribute uh, are we there yet or we still have to to work on that to attract that talent and then the second question is how do we communicate what we're discussing to a wider stakeholder group uh, essentially to establish buy-in uh, at a higher level right so uh, w- one thing i'd say to this is talent is contagious um so whilst we're globally i mean i think globally there's there's always a uh supply and demand talent, uh, problem for, for talent. Um, we're certainly steps and steps above um, where we were um, even 10 years ago and, and certainly 20 years ago. So um, I'm, I'm not pessimistic on the talent side at all. In fact, I think um, that uh, this, is, this is something that's growing. Now, regionally, um, I'm also not, I'm quite the opposite to pessimistic. I'm hugely optimistic. I think that bringing COP here was uh, a fantastic decision for a number of reasons. Um, one is that it allows the, the UAE to demonstrate uh, to a, a lot of times very unreasonably pessimistic um, uh, or skeptical um, global audience. Um, the really excellent work that has been done uh, in this country to foster the, the transition. I say that as someone who's been here almost four years uh, and um, and uh, I mean it's 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 central to this this country's plans to diversify um, over the long term and ensure it's it's essentially strategic uh, uh, and economic um, well-being uh, over the long term. But also COP built a huge momentum in this country has, I mean, I have colleagues who were previously working on sustainable finance in ADGM who are now um, uh, uh, seconded to COP. Um, essentially, uh, the contagion of, uh, of, I'm not sure where the contagion is, but the sharing of best practice um, in terms of sustainability and, and knowledge around that is is palpable. So this is going to have a huge impact on this country, but not only this country. It's 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 uh, about the Gulf and, and wider region. So that's that question addressed. I think 
your kind of second point was a bit more about the broader stakeholder um, engagement and understanding uh, of this point. Um, so, so on this, I think we need to get to a happy place uh, in the world of sustainable finance where stakeholders uh, achieve the kind of level of education that they that is required to have in order to be able to discern between what is a uh, potentially greenwashing um, product uh, or service and what is one that uh, is sort of fulfilling best practice. Um, the role, our role as regulators is to try and help them never have to make that choice. Um, but uh, I think we need to just be a, bit, a little bit realistic um, because it's just like the world of any financial services in which um, uh, the choice is ultimately at the consumer. We shouldn't expect sort of 8 billion-ish people in the world to obtain expert level um, uh, status uh, regarding uh, sustainability generally and uh, uh, sustain, you know, analysis of sustainable finance products specifically. And I think um, what efforts like IOSCO um, and so the International Organization of Securities Bodies are seeking to do in terms of um, uh, dissipating investor knowledge about these terms is sort of exactly what we need on this. Um, uh, as a regulator, I would say that ultimately our role as regulators is to try and make sure that that happy place that I was speaking about earlier is doesn't require too much work on behalf of, of the, the investor. Um, don't expect them to get up to the master's level in sustainable finance in order to be able to, to, to read a product fact sheet and, and work out whether this is greenwashing or not. Yeah, I imagine that masters in sustainable finance will constantly keep changing each year as well, uh, as the industry is constantly evolving too. Um, there's one aspect too, as well, that comes into that equation. Uh, it's not just you know for the financial uh, services industry, the, the finance sector, but it, this is kind of for for all sectors who are going through this uh, transformation. Is of course we're talking about benefiting people and planet, but there's also profit. How do you see that coming into the equation and being a selling point moving forward? Um, you know, sustainability isn't always a short-term, you know, ROI investment. For example, it might be a part of a longer-term strategy. Where does profit come into into that equation, and how do you how do you think stakeholders should approach that concept? I don't necessarily see the contradiction that a lot of um, peers see um, in the issue that, and maybe I'm just missing something big, but I, I'll give you an example. Um, I mean, the, the, the UK Green Investments Bank, which invested in offshore wind, um, I mean, there was a, a sum of money put up by the UK into energy infrastructure. It was an immensely profitable venture and went out to the market as a profitable venture, which is why the market um, uh, it invested it in it, took it off. So things like energy infrastructure, particularly where you have government pricing and uh, uh, flaws on them, unless I'm misunderstanding this fundamentally, um, uh, uh, 
this this is not an area where you see a, a huge amount of losses made. Um, utility companies are in a great in a good way and um, boring, often boring and counter cyclical co companies. So th the actual concept of the profit motive is not in contradiction um, uh, to, to to getting to to net zero. I mean, there's more examples, which is just that the growth prospects for ESG or green funds are, are just seen as the growth area in fund and asset management, particularly as we move away. Well, let's put it this way. There's price pressure to move away from active management um, to, to, to passive management. Um, so, uh, you know, th those funds are being managed at a profit by those asset managers. And um, there's no contradiction there between the sustainability objectives of the end investor and the profit um, uh, objectives of the fund, fund manager sort of at face value. Where the problems come in are primarily in this concept that um, green outcomes are being sold, but are not, are, have a low, zero to, to low um, likelihood of being delivered. That is ultimately, and again, conflict of interest. I am a regulator, so I would say regulation is key, but that is ultimately uh, why we as regulators see our, our role as uh, important because we're here to try and take away um, um, that, uh, that potential conflict and um, subjectivity. I think I mentioned earlier on behalf of uh, a financial intermediary about what is con considered green. And then finally, importantly, enforce where we see sort of bad practice uh, being undertaken. Um, and so, of course, implementation is always the hardest phase of, of anything. You know, you have the vision, you have the targets, and then you really roll up your sleeves to, to get that action done and the implementation phase uh, of things going. Um, 20 minutes goes by pretty fast. I actually think we're at 25 minutes now. I just wanted to get final comments from you. Um, of course, COP28, we've been talking about it for so long, and it's now upon us, I believe, you know, just starting in a week's time. Um, what are your hopes and expectations from outcomes from COP28 uh, at that event in terms of climate action? Obviously, this is just a blimp and a long journey ahead. Um, but what are you looking for in terms of outcomes that would come from the conference? Yeah. So. Um... COP this year will be, my prediction is that COP this year will be big in terms of ambition and outcomes. Um, the reason why I, I have that prediction is having lived and worked in the, the UAE for almost four years, this is a country with a huge energy around it. It's kind of a youth, youthful country with a lot of ambitions, a lot of energy, and the substance to back that up. So um, I hope that what outcomes out of COP will move the dial materially in terms of uh, something equating to being able to have a pathway to closing that green financing gap that um, I mentioned earlier. And then that will be across 
um, private sector, public sector, um, what's known as concessional finance, so sort of non, not strictly for profit um, based uh, financing. Um, and, and that includes on, on things like um, the loss and damage fund. If you will allow me to focus it in on ADGM for just a second. Um, Go ahead. I will say we published our sustainable finance regulatory framework July this year, sort of in good time for COP. Um, I think what will happen is in, as a result of next week's finance week uh, here in Abu Dhabi and uh, the following week's uh, COP is that we are really going to move the dial forward in terms of making the ADGM a premier centre of sustainable finance in terms of the products and services that it hosts that are there to channel money into the transition to net zero, but also the commitments of the companies based in this uh, international financial centre to themselves become more green and, um, and uh, to become net zero companies. So those are my hopes, dreams and ambitions. Well, thank you, Nick. We very much appreciate your time and your insight shared today. For all those who are listening and watching this podcast, please feel free to follow Nick on social media as well as ADGM, uh, of course, leading the way in this space for the region and globally as well. Um, and then, of course, Gulf Intelligence, where we'll be publishing this uh, content. But thank you very much, Nick. We appreciate your time and we look forward to having you back on the series again in the future on the other side of COP28. Thanks so much, Brian.